I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at uh, the next three Beatitudes. So last week we covered verses 1 to 5, introducing um, this, this series as we begin in the Sermon on the Mount. And we looked at the first three Beatitudes. And so we're going to continue looking at verses 6 to 8 today, the next three. And then we will finish them up and get to verse 12, Lord willing, next week. I mentioned last time that the Sermon on the Mount reveals to us the need for the new birth. Uh, the need for God to change the heart of the sinner, to renew the heart of the sinner. Uh, it's the only way for any of these beatitudes to truly be present in a person. And we see this throughout the beatitudes, and we, we most assuredly see it in the three that we're looking at today. They, they, they really reveal the renewed character, the renewed nature of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as I've said, these Beatitudes, they function like descriptors of Christ's disciples. They describe, describe what, really what Christians are. But this is not something where we should just look at these descriptions, admire them like we might a painting, and then uh, walk away. Um, D.A. Carson wrote a commentary on Matthew, and, and he says there, he helpfully points out that these Beatitudes in their form are certainly declarations, descriptions. They just declare, blessed are these people for that, for that reason. Others uh, declaring these things to be true. Uh, this is the form of the words. Uh, but Carson adds that we must not overlook the function of these words. That is what these words are doing. They function as exhortations to us. Uh, first, for those who are disciples, and remember, as we said last time, the primary audience of Jesus here are his disciples, those who believe in him. So first, this would serve the purpose, the function uh, of his disciples being more sure uh, that they are indeed his disciples, that they belong to him. They can look at these beatitudes and recognize that these things are true of them and, and, and then take comfort in the promises that are given to rejoice in those promises. And I would also add uh, that these traits here would remind disciples of what is good, that we might desire these things in fuller measure as we give consideration to these, these different traits here. So that's for the disciples. And then, of course, the secondary audience, as you know, as you, if you remember, is this great crowd. There's, there's disciples and there's others who are not disciples of Christ who would be looking on as well. And secondly, for, for those listening in, the function of these would be to cause them to think about these things and then long to be one of these disciples, to have these things true of them, to be among the blessed people. And of course, we should see that we cannot live up to all of these things that Jesus is saying here and throughout this sermon should see our need of renewal in the heart and of cleansing and look to Christ in faith and have these things then formed in us by the Lord. So these are the functions of these, uh, these beatitudes, even as they're just describing things. So let's read, we're going to read verses 1 to 12 once again, and then we'll look at verses 6 to 8. So 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So let's look beginning in verse 6 at the blessing of hungering for righteousness. So verse 6 again says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Of course, to hunger and thirst is a vivid metaphor for strongly desiring something. Um, You've all felt, I'm certain, the pangs of hunger and thirst, the great need for these things, desire for food and for water. Uh, Hungering and thirsting, obviously, this implies lacking something. The reason we hunger for food is because we lack it and we need it. The reason we hunger or thirst for water is because we lack it and we also need water. These are things we need to survive. These things that our bodies don't have when we are hungering or thirsting. And the hungering and thirsting here in verse 6, again, is not a physical thing Jesus is talking about, but spiritual. It is a hunger and a thirst, he says, for righteousness. It pictures one who is lacking righteousness and feels it, recognizes their deep need for righteousness. And so there is therefore a desire for it, knowing they don't possess it and need it. And they need it. Now, whenever we think of righteousness and needing righteousness, I hope your mind starts to go towards imputed righteousness, the idea of imputed or credited righteousness. This is what forms the grounds or the foundation of a sinner's justification. And and it is this. The, The Lord Jesus, in his earthly life, perfectly obeyed his Father, perfectly obeyed the law of God in everything. He did the will of his Father. This included everything he did throughout his life, Right up, right up to the point of dying on the cross for sinners and then rising again from the dead. And as he did this, Christ earned righteousness that is then credited or imputed to the believer's account as a gracious gift from God when that sinner repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when a person believes in Christ, they are credited with this righteousness of Christ, which the Bible refers to a number of places as the righteousness of God. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him, talking of Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we believe in Christ and are united to him, The righteousness of God is credited to us as a gift because we lack it and we don't have righteousness and we cannot earn 
enough righteousness. And we need righteousness if we are to stand before God. And so then sinners are justified by God's grace through having Christ's righteousness imputed to our account. So this is the righteousness that justifies a sinner. Those in Christ stand not condemned because the righteousness of God has been graciously credited to our account. And this is something that is received by faith alone. Which is to say, our works contribute nothing to this. We do not add to this justifying righteousness. It is sufficient. One is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, by the work of Christ alone. And indeed, Christ's people understand this need and long for that righteousness. Now that being said, and that being gloriously true, it's imputed righteousness, I don't think that that is primarily what Jesus has in mind when he says these words in Matthew chapter 5. So let me explain that. When a person is justified, they have a new standing with God. You are declared righteous by God because of Christ's righteousness given to you as a gift. It's credited to your account. It's yours now. God can look at a sinner now and declare you to be righteous before him. And yet believers are not yet made perfectly righteous in our persons. Right? In our prayer earlier, we heard about this flesh that remains that we war against. Okay, so we are simultaneously just on account of what Christ has done for us and sinners. Still in our person, we still sin and wrestle with sin in our lives. And we also know that the Lord God is committed to sanctifying those whom he justifies. That is to say, he is working holiness, righteousness into those that he justifies by his grace. He is making his people more like the Lord Jesus. And part of that is granting to his disciples a hunger and a thirst for that righteousness. And I would suggest to you that that is primarily what Jesus is talking about here when he speaks of a hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Where does that come from? Again, it comes from being born again, receiving the new birth, being justified, having Christ's righteousness credited to your account, and now that new person, that new creation, now hungers and thirsts after that righteousness. Formerly, it was a despising of the righteousness of God and a loving of one's own sin, and now it is reversed and there is now a a desire for that righteousness. There is an awareness of lack. There is now a wrestling and a battling with sin. Of course, it is true because of that indwelling flesh that yet remains. There There are times when Christians still desire sin, But then there is also that nagging part of you, that conscience, that won't let you entirely get away with that sin either. And you know it's wrong. And on goes this wrestling match with our flesh. The thing that that Paul describes in Romans chapter 7 as this war between our renewed spirit and the spirit of God within us battling with 
the indwelling remaining flesh. The world might know about wanting to be a better person, certainly have a sense of right and wrong at times, as the law of God is still on their heart, even as they suppress the truth about God and unrighteousness. But the world does not know about this hungering and thirsting and does not possess it. And the longer we live and the more we see how after all the, these years, however long you've been a believer, and if you continue to live on many more years and days, as we see that we're still so very unrighteous in and of ourselves, that longing for Christ's return increases. That time when the battle will finally be complete and the Lord will bring us to perfection of righteousness. And I think as we consider this hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that we can add this to that hungering and thirsting, namely a desire to see righteousness not just in ourselves as we consider our own unrighteousness, but also the desire to see it all around us, to live in a world of righteousness. (coughs) Does your soul not get agitated by the wickedness that's all around? Is there not a longing for for all things to be made right, a longing for the return of Christ. Peter tells us in 2 Peter that Lot, when he lived near the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, it says his, his righteous soul was greatly distressed by the wickedness of his neighbors. This is common for those who would hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, if we think about the condition of being hungry and thirsty, we obviously, that's not really ordinarily a blessed state. We would not think of it that way. But again, Jesus tells us those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are in a happy condition, are in a blessed state, because as Jesus says, they will be satisfied. They will be satisfied. This is a promise to cling to, to cling to with your whole heart. As that disgust that you feel with yourself as you continually fall short when you know you've sinned again. That desire to be done with sin, that longing to just be holy already in your person, that longing to be free of a world of sin and unrighteousness and wickedness. It will come. That hungering and thirsting will be satisfied, it says. Again, this promise is put in the future tense. It's true we experience a measure of satisfaction now. We rest in Christ's righteousness. We grow in holiness over time, however painfully slow that feels at times. But the ultimate satisfaction that is being talked about here will come at the end. This is what Paul is referring to in Philippians 1.6. You recall when he says there, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, the one who has justified you, who has begun to sanctify you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That longing will be satisfied. That hunger and thirst will one day pass away 
and eternal satisfaction, rest will be yours. So this reality encourages the battle in the meantime. It ought to encourage your battle in the meantime to, to press on and to not give up. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. It doesn't come to full satisfaction in this age, in this time. We will battle with sin until the Lord comes or calls us home. And yet we have great hope in this promise that you will one day be satisfied. And so carry on, press on in the battle. And be reminded here of the goodness of pursuing righteousness even now. This is characteristic of Christ's people. Let your dissatisfaction with self and the world turn to longing for Christ to come, for the world that will come with him. That's the blessing of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Secondly, the blessing for the merciful. Verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. A characteristic of Christ's disciples is that they are merciful. Again, this, this reality of being merciful, it really only makes sense. It just logically follows given what we've already seen even just in the other Beatitudes. So if disciples are those who recognize their spiritual poverty, who mourn for their sin and the sins of those around them, who are meek and gentle, who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, recognizing we don't possess it in and of ourselves. If this is who we are, then will not such a people also be merciful? And this is getting at a disposition for the Lord's people. It's not just that once in a while we do a kind thing. It's that we are characterized by a mercy, mercy being merciful. To be merciful means to be concerned about people in their need and misery, to be compassionate, to have pity, sympathy. It is often in the scriptures tied to forgiveness. Psalm 130, the psalmist cries out, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The plea for mercy there, what, why is he wanting God to be kind and, and compassionate to him? What's the problem? Well, it's his iniquity. If you mark iniquity, I'm done for. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Have mercy on me in my sin. Take compassion on me. and Do not mark my iniquities against me. And we see this mercy tied to forgiveness all throughout the New Testament as well, of course, Jesus himself in Hebrews 2.17, we're told, became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Christ in mercy, in compassion and care and concern for people, has satisfied God's wrath against their sin for all who believe in him. And so it is often mercy is often tied to forgiveness. But it is a, a broader category than that, a broader concept. And for disciples to be merciful people, it means being compassionate toward others in general, which would stem from, come from a knowledge of the great and many mercies 
that we have received from God. Again, as we talked about last time, disciples are the empty-handed sinners who've been pardoned and granted entry into God's kingdom. We came with nothing and we are given everything. And so, again, it very logically follows that we would then turn and be a merciful people to others. And this being merciful reveals itself in a number of ways. Again, it begins with a disposition of compassion, of mercifulness to others, but it will reveal itself in a number of ways. And Jesus is going to talk about a number of these things throughout this Sermon on the Mount. So first of all, it does mean that we would be those who forgive others. In chapter 6, Jesus will say that the one who doesn't forgive isn't himself forgiven. A Christian who will not forgive another person who seeks their forgiveness is not a Christian. According to the Lord's own words, later in chapter 6, such a person does not understand himself and his own sin, nor God and the tremendous mercy that God has granted to those who call out to him for that mercy. Jesus also taught about this in the parable of the unmerciful servant, if you remember that one. Matthew 18, there the unmerciful servant is the one who represents the professing believer who refuses to forgive a brother. He is called out for this mercy of his tremendously large debt, but then will not forgive a much lesser debt to someone who asks for it. Such a person, Jesus says there, is not actually in the kingdom of God because his disciples are marked with mercy. They will forgive. Being merciful also reveals itself in modesty and humility and making judgments. This is clear in chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, in which we're told to deal with the log in our own eye before helping a brother with a speck in theirs and to be careful about the way in which we would judge others, about the measure that we use toward other people. Being merciful means we don't need to demand absolute satisfaction for every single wrong that gets committed against us. We are those who turn the other cheek. That's going to be the end of chapter 6, verse 38 to 42. Jesus will talk about that. Likewise, being merciful means that we are those who would pray for those who persecute us. Jesus will say even love our enemies. So it is not even just that well, we will extend mercy if somebody asks us for it, but if you don't, we're coming for your blood or demanding every last bit of whatever. No, it's, Jesus will tell us the importance of loving even our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. This is, those, this is being merciful. And of course, being merciful also manifests itself in generosity to those in need. Chapter 6, verse 2 assumes that we will be those who give when Jesus talks about how to give and how not to give is not like the hypocrites and so on. In the book of Acts, you, you remember seeing the word alms being used. People asking for alms, the giving of alms. 
That's not a word that we really use outside of maybe reading the book of Acts, at least not anymore. Uh, But the word alms is an old English word that is derived ultimately from the Greek word for mercy. Giving alms was to give mercy to somebody, usually in the form of food or money. So you sometimes hear of mercy ministry, church or Christians doing mercy ministry. That's giving them mercy. That's helping them with the things that they lack. That's a demonstration of of compassion and care for those in need. So we have blessed are the merciful, this characteristic of disciples. And then comes the reason why such are blessed. It says, for they shall receive mercy. Again, this promise here is pointing to the future, a future mercy. That is when the final day arrives, the merciful disciples of Christ will be shown mercy by God. Again, these, I don't think I've said, I said this last time, but many of these promises are put in uh, the passive voice, right? They, they will receive mercy. They will be shown mercy. Um, they will be satisfied. The disciple is the one receiving the action of the verb. You know, somebody's doing the action. These are often referred to as divine passives. It is, a, it is implied that God is the one doing the action as the disciples receive it. God is the one who will satisfy one day those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Likewise, God is the one who shall show mercy to his disciples who are themselves characterized by mercy. So mercy is fitting for the Christian for it is what we have already received and it is what we can expect to receive in full one day. And so when you're in a situation in which you get to show mercy, remember, obviously, the great mercy of God toward you. And when showing mercy is difficult, remember again the mercy that yet awaits you on that final day. When many will be judged with a tremendous judgment worthy of their sins, And yet you are receiving mercy from God. Being merciful is not the cause of one's being admitted into glory. It is simply one of the evidences that one belongs to the Lord and to his people. Having received such tremendous mercy for our innumerable sins... God then works this fruit within his people. And so I would encourage you to not grow weary in showing mercy to others. Hear the goodness of granting forgiveness to those around you who seek it instead of holding their sins against them. Let us not forgive in word only. Hear also the goodness of letting go of bitterness even when someone has wronged you and maybe never asked for your forgiveness, to still let go of of bitterness. These are important reminders, and we'll continue to see this as we go through this Sermon on the Mount. I think particularly in these days and as we go out into the future with so many opportunities to be angry, to be vexed, Probably lots more opportunities to to show mercy. 
And so let us guard our hearts that we do not become hardened to the plight of, of, of one another and even people outside of these doors, our church. Thirdly, the blessing of the pure heart. In verse 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus was continually confronted with people who thought that an external piety and an external ritual cleanness and purity was really what mattered. As long as I am externally clean, I'm good to go. As long as they went through the right rituals and steps, those that were laid out in the Old Testament and maybe some additional traditions of the elders and other things, then they were good to go. They were okay. They were pleasing to God. And Jesus routinely had to correct this. And this has not changed any. People think, I just clean up some exterior things. I'm not as bad as other people. Maybe give a little bit or show up to church at least often or often enough to keep it up. That's what God's concerned about. This sets me apart. This makes, means I'm okay with the Lord. Jesus constantly had to instruct to the contrary, to correct this thinking, that God is indeed looking at the heart. And we see this throughout the scriptures. This is not just Jesus in the New Testament, but he clarifies this. You remember the, when, when Saul was chosen as king, he was tall and, and handsome, and he looked like a king. He was the man for it. Everyone could see it very clearly. And they chose him, but he turned out, obviously, to be a, a wicked man. And then when it came time to choose David, he's not even called from among the sons of Jesse because he's small and insignificant. And even Samuel thinks this can't be right. And God teaches there that God is the one looking at the heart, not the externals, which is what man does. This is all kinds of ways that we do that. God looks at the heart. True holiness, true purity is a purity and a holiness within. It is not merely some external thing. You remember Jesus' words to the Pharisees and the scribes, Matthew 23, 27, when he pronounces woe upon them. He says, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's a, it's a brilliant picture and explanation of that concern about externals and looking good before men and other people and yet being grossly impure and corrupted within. And that's the part that God is concerned with. The Sermon on the Mount will have much to say about this error, this hypocrisy as we go. And I believe that that is what Jesus is addressing here when he speaks of purity. The blessed are not the ritually cleansed on the outside, but rather those who are cleansed from within. They have had the inner self renewed and remade. It is from the heart, the inner being of man, that sin springs forth. Jesus said in Mark 7, 21, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within 
and they defile a person. Again, the context is the same sort of thing. This argument over external cleansing versus internal. It is the bad tree that bears bad fruit. How do you fix that? The tree must be made good in order for the fruit to be good. Man continually underestimates the problem. It is not simply we need to clean up a few external matters. The heart needs a renovation. And of course, no man can just make this happen. We cannot just make ourselves pure. Once again, in this, we are reminded of the absolute necessity for the new birth, for God to take that stony heart and be the one to make it new. To take that stony heart that produces wickedness and sin and replace it with the heart of flesh that can now produce true holiness. The external rites of the cleansing in the Old Testament were meant, among other things, to teach the people for the need for internal cleansing, for the need of the new birth. Circumcision was the same thing, pointing to the necessity of having a circumcised heart, which is why when Nicodemus goes to Jesus in John chapter 3 and, and doesn't know what Jesus is talking about when he says you must be born again, Jesus chides him and says, how can you not know this? Are you not the teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? He ought to have seen it in Scripture and have known this. And so for the person who is thus born again, the holiness that you now produce out of that new heart is not a perfect holiness, but it is indeed a true holiness from a new and purified heart. That holiness is not the grounds of your justification. That, again, is the work of Christ alone. But it is the necessary fruit of that justification. As James says, a, a faith that doesn't have deeds that arise from the new heart is a dead faith. And we know, of course, that the Lord will bring this purifying work within his people to completion at the day of Christ. In other places, this word pure is used to describe Christians. In Titus 1.15, Paul writes, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Again, this contrast between the believers who are called the pure and the defiled and unbelieving. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.22, as Paul exhorts Timothy in his ministry, he says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, which is similar to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. It is out of the pure, cleansed heart that Christ's disciples call out to God, and do indeed pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. The pure heart is not said to be the result of that pursuit, but rather it is the root of it.
The pure in heart are blessed, Jesus says, and he gives the reason for this. The promise. For they shall see God. There is a sense in which believers now do see God in some sense with eyes of faith. Hebrews 11.1 and really throughout Hebrews 11. And as we behold the person of Jesus, we certainly see a reflection of the Father. Jesus himself said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And he said, how can you say then, show us the Father? John 14.9. But more often than not, the scriptures tell us and teach us that God is actually out of reach for us. He's invisible to us. We can't see him. In 1 Timothy 6.16, Paul references God who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The knowledge that we have of God, we have now, is, is, an imp- is a partial knowledge. It's far from perfect. But Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the final and the full seeing, the thing that is promised here, this seeing God, is reserved for the new Jerusalem. Again, for that eternal state, the final state. And of course, at that time, at the same time, we will be perfectly made holy. The work of sanctification being brought to its completion and a perfect purity will indeed be ours. Revelation 22, 3 and 4 tells us about this time. It says, no longer, speaking of the new Jerusalem that has come down, beloved, we are, sorry, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God And of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. 1 John 3, 2 also holds out this hope to believers. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. There's something greater yet to come. But we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Now, as we think about what this means, that we would see God and these references to seeing him face to face, seeing his face, uh, there's different debates and understandings and discussions about what exactly that's going to look like to behold the face of God. And it's something that is worthy of our consideration to contemplate, to give thought to. But at the end of the day, the Bible doesn't make it crystal clear to us exactly how that's going to work or what exactly we're going to be seeing or how it's going to be. We're going to see the whole triune God at once. Is this through, see see him in in the face of the Lord Jesus, who is still truly man, glorified, but we'll certainly, we can understand how we might see him. But how do we see God Almighty, our triune God? The Bible doesn't give us a lot of details about what that's going to be like. We might wonder why. We might be disappointed. We might wonder why that is. 
Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones answers the question, gives his answer to that question of why. It doesn't say more. He says, it is because of the glory of God. Our terms are so inadequate and our minds are so small and finite that there is a danger in any attempt at a description of God and his glory. All we know is that there is this glorious promise that in some way or other, the pure in heart shall see God. That's a remarkable promise. If that seems unimpressive to you, think about these things. Think about who this God is. Remember who it is we are speaking of. The eternal God. The one who has created all things by his word. Just look up and look out and consider that. How he has created all of this by his word. And even as we think of him speaking, our triune God, even the idea of a mouth is really just accommodating language to us that we might understand something of who God is because he does not have parts and appendages of a body as we do. He is infinite. He is not bounded by anything. The Godhead is, consists of three persons who share in the one divine essence. He is completely free. He is dependent upon nothing. That hungering and thirsting that you and I have, he's never had it. It is not something he experiences in his nature. He is completely free, depends on nothing. The almighty sovereign ruler of the universe, the creator of time itself, existing outside of time, not experiencing things sequentially in the same way that we do. He's eternal. How can we see this God? It's difficult. We can't get our finite minds around it. It's too marvelous to adequately capture in words and to imagine with our brains. And yet here is the promise here that they will see God one way or another. Let us rejoice at such a grant, at such a gift, to tremble even at the thought. This is the end for which Christ has purchased you. This is where everything is headed for you if you are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let this cause you to further purify your heart. In fact, I quoted from 1 John 3, 2, which says, we shall see him as he is. And then in verse 3, he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And even as we consider that we will see the Holy Almighty to then further seek to fight and battle our sin. Let this remind us of the goodness again of pursuing the things of the Lord, giving our attention to these things, to put off sinful pleasures, certainly, even just to let other interests of ours perhaps fade in their significance and importance, that we might desire above all 
the Lord and that which is concerning to him. Certainly this would include spending time with God in prayer. This is a great privilege we have to go to our God. We're told to, we're commanded to, but it's also our our privilege to be able to pray to Him, to breathe out our sorrows before Him, to find mercy and grace, help in our time of need. And let us continue through our days with anticipation of that day when we will see Him. And if the thought of seeing Him is nothing but just sheer terror to you, if this is who God is, He's holy, He's just, He's perfect, He needs nothing, that's who I've sinned against. If the thought of standing before God is pure terror, again, I would plead with you to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has come to satisfy God's wrath and his anger towards sinners, to believe upon him. The promise, again, of God is that those who believe in the Lord Jesus will be forgiven and granted eternal life. Place your hope and your faith in him. As we close, I just want to read through those three verses again, beginning in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you in recognition of the fact that none of these characteristics that we see are true in us, in and of ourselves. Father, in our human nature, in our fallen nature, we are not merciful people. We do not hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we most certainly are not pure in heart. Father, we thank you for your work of grace and mercy in sending your Son and then in having your Spirit apply redemption to your people, to all who believe. Thank you for the work of the new birth by which we do come to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Father, we continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness because we are still not in our persons righteous. Father, we thank you that There is a saving righteousness of Christ that's ours by faith and we can rest in that. And we look forward to and long for the day when we will be in our person actually made righteous. When you will finish the work that you have begun. Father, I pray that you would cause the thought of seeing you in your glory, whatever exactly that is going to look like, to be an exciting and an awe-inspiring reality. Father, help us to keep that before us, that we might not grow weary in this life. Father, strengthen each person as we go from here. Make us generous and merciful people.
Fill us with compassion for one another and for others around us. Forgive us, Father, even as we read these words and consider this teaching, we know there are so many times we fall short. And so we, we praise you for Christ and for your mercies. Again, we pray, God, that you would fill in us a, a, a greater and greater desire to know you and to, to be righteous. Father, I pray that you'd be with each person as we go from this place. I pray that we would continue to worship, that our conversation would be edifying to you, and that you would strengthen us for the week ahead and for the days ahead and whatever trials and joys await us. Father, we know that you are sovereign over all, and we submit ourselves into your good hands, and we thank you that you are worthy to be trusted and we thank you for these words that we can read from your word together. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.